0: Halloween's coming up, but I'm wondering, do you believe in ghosts? I do. What do you think they are? Are they just evil spirits, dead people? What do you think they are?
1: They could be dead. They could be coming back and checking back on us, all their loved ones. What do you think happens when we die? I believe that our spirit goes somewhere, but I'm not exactly sure where.
0: Do you believe in ghosts? Uh, yes. What do you think they are? Uh, souls. People's souls that never left. So, do you think it's possible that when we die, we could become ghosts? Absolutely. Do you believe in ghosts? Sure. <laughs> what do you think they are? Spirits. Like evil spirits or dead people? Dead people. Do you think it's possible when you die you could become a ghost? Sure. Do you believe in ghosts? Uh, no. Is it just superstition? I would say so. Probably just superstition with tradition. Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? Uh, well, you we either go to heaven or hell. You don't believe in ghosts? Not generally. Not generally? No. Every no. language, every culture has the word for ghosts. What do you think it is that people are talking about? Like, a, know, like a, spirit. a spirit. So you think spirits do exist? Yeah, to, a, to, to a level. Do you believe in ghosts? Um, yeah. yeah. All right. What do you think they are? I don't know, like supernatural kind of things, yeah. like things that have just stayed here yeah. after they have uh Like dead people? Passed. Yeah, basically. Do you think it's possible that we could become ghosts when we die? Possibly, yeah. Depending on if your spirit passes or not. I would have to say that, yeah, I believe there are spirits. And do you think they're more like demons or dead humans? I would want to say that they are, uh people who weren't able to die contently possible that when you die you could become a ghost yeah possible if i don't die with everything i wanted to do yeah on this edition of the humble skeptic podcast a discussion of death ghosts and views of the afterlife Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's
2: a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith, I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic, it brings me peace.
0: I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think
1: it's a matter of subjective experience.
0: I kinda just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know, you just gotta follow it. You
1: just gotta follow what you think is your faith.
0: If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Since today happens to be October 31st, which here in the States is the day we celebrate Halloween, I thought it might be fun to compare and contrast contemporary beliefs about death, ghosts, and the afterlife with the biblical view. My conversation partner for this episode is Dr. Michael McClyman, who is the professor of modern theology at St. Louis University and the author of many books, including The Devil's Redemption. So in light of the popular views about ghosts in the afterlife, some of which you heard at the beginning of this episode, I first decided to ask Dr. Mclyman how he believes these themes are presented in both the Old and New Testaments.
2: Well, when we turn to Scripture, we see a number of things. I guess we have to kind of lay these out in sequence to get them clear in our mind. First of all, There is a a spiritual world that includes not only God, but also angels, fallen and unfallen. Uh, There is a spiritual world that involves human beings as well, as beings with spirit, soul or spirit, depending on whether you distinguish those or identify those two terms. And then if you turn to passages such as Deuteronomy 18, there's a very clear instruction that God's people are forbidden to attempt to practice spiritism, which is generally understood by scholars of Hebrew of the Old Testament as an attempt to communicate with spirits of the departed, of the human dead. right? And one of the things that's kind of striking is that that text doesn't really define the status of the human dead, but it mainly is a warning about attempting to communicate. And in fact, it even says that this is an abomination to God. Those who practice Spiritism. So uh, there may be some room for discussion among Christians in terms of what we think about, you know, the spirits of departed humans. Um, the other text that we probably should bring in, not just Deuteronomy 18, but in Second Corinthians chapter 11, where it says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Right, and that is a is a sweeping principle that suggests that fallen angels or evil spirits demons as they are also called in scripture have the capacity to disguise themselves and one clear way that a demonic power force spirit could disguise itself of course is as a human spirit of a departed person that of course is less frightening if the demon appears as a demon that's a scary thing if it's disguised as a departed human then obviously it would be possible for the demons to Begin to establish contact and perhaps even establish a bond with human beings, which is, seems to be uh, again going back to Deuteronomy 18, the basis of the biblical prohibition against trying to contact spirits of the dead. Often, I mean, in ancient as in modern times, these could be grieving parents, right, who um, who are longing for a further connection or or a grie- someone grieving for a spouse or a father or mother, or someone who's gone on. We know that in the USA. That spiritism of in precisely this way took off right after the Civil War. In fact, Mary Todd Lincoln practiced had spiritualist seances in the White House. Yeah, a lot of interest at that time of
0: American history of what the ancients would call necromancy. And there's a fascinating text in First um, Samuel where King Saul, as he is uh, moving further towards corruption, <laughs> uh, decides that um, he wants to get advice from the recently deceased prophet Samuel. You know, God won't answer his prayers and he gets no word from the prophets. So he hires a medium and, you know, the witch there of Endor does conjure up the deceased Samuel and <laughs> Saul ends up getting rebuked in that scene and cursed. So does that text end up indicating that necromancy is, is real in some respect?
2: Well, if, if you look at the history of interpretation of that passage, you find a significant split of interpreters i kind of you know my general view of this realm of spiritism i take what i would call the hall of mirrors view that this is a realm one of the reasons god forbids us to delve into this realm is that things are not what they appear to be hmm. and often there is a combination of real spiritual manifestations together with trickery yeah with sleight of hand optical illusion uh, this is not to say that it's all optical illusion. I don't. I don't think that we can make that conclusion. Right. But often these things are combined in very confusing and and frustrating and sometimes just quite baffling ways. So it's possible to read that passage that, that there was an appearance that the witch took to be Samuel and that uh, the witch of Endor that is and of of course the Bewitched series Endora right is the witch in that television series was named after the Endor anyway it was a play on your biblical knowledge back then when that television series came out. Um, So the witch and Saul interpret this as Samuel. It's not really clear that the text is making a kind of a metaphysical claim that definitively, yes, this actually was Samuel. I don't know that we can go quite that far. And I would just point out something else to kind of back up in front of this. Notice that Saul turns to the medium because he's not hearing from God. And there's a reason. He had ordered the, the massacre of the Israelite priests, and God had shut off communication with him. But we see the, the contrast between these two of hearing from God versus going this other way. This is precisely why this is forbidden in Deuteronomy 18, is because it's, a, it's an alternative way of seeking guidance from the spiritual world that is in contrast and actually in conflict with submitting to God's direction and guidance. You know, it seems to me that there's a progression of the
0: view of death in the Old Testament. You know, Daniel will say, those who sleep in the earth will awake. And so Mm -hmm. at some point, in my view, there's a transition. Those who died in the Old Testament, in some sense, slept. And if that really is Samuel, it's almost like he's been disturbed from his sleep.
2: Why have you disturbed me? Yeah. Right.
0: And in the New Testament, you find this language to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. I'm wondering if um, once Christ has come, there's a new reality where we wouldn't say that you go into a kind of soul sleep when we die now in the New Covenant period, that we're immediately transitioned into the realm with Christ, if we're, if we're believers.
2: Yeah, I think there is a distinction. Second Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of that. For believers, absence from the body, present with the Lord, so there is no no shadowy realm of Sheol, which is a Hebrew word, or Hades, which would be the Greek word for this, this sort of post-mortem semi-life, you know, that it's presented in a very kind of grim and unattractive way. And what's really striking too is how closely the Old Testament Hebrew notion and the Greek notion are to one another, even though they they seem to be culturally independent because in the in the Odyssey. You know, when Odysseus calls up the spirits of the dead, one says, I would, I would rather be the meanest servant in the lowest household in all of Greece than to be the king of this realm of the dead. In other words, it just was not a, a worthwhile lifestyle.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's possible if there were, is a real ghostly-like existence that it wouldn't be of believers but maybe of unbelievers who kind of had this half-life
2: state? Or do you think that that's only in that sort of old covenant period? Yes, she always is presented in the Old Testament as the universal destination of those who die, although there are hints of somebody being with God, uh, but it's not really spelled out. I think that's not really very well defined. I, think I agree. I think Scripture is more concerned to define for Christian believers that when they're absent from the body, they're present with the Lord. But whether the wicked immediately go into a state of separation from God, something like an anticipation of the hell state prior to judgment— I'd have to think about that because I, I don't know that that's really spelled out that well. We There, there is reference in Jude to angels who were held in bondage, yeah. right, for the judgment of the great day. It's almost like, well, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion right now about bail reform, right, and letting people out on bail. But in the old days, you know, if you committed a serious crime, you stay in prison, right, until the day of the trial. And so that's kind of the picture that you have of these fallen angels. Yeah. What that would apply to reprobate human beings is, is a is a— Open question in my mind. There is an interesting text in Luke twenty four where Jesus appears to his disciples
0: after his resurrection, and the disciples are frightened and they think that they've seen a ghost. And Jesus responds to them saying, "Why are you troubled? See my hands and feet; that it's I myself. Touch me, and see. For a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have." You know, he doesn't say, you know, "Why are you troubled? Ghosts and spirits don't exist."
2: <laughs> this notion of the the human dead having some continuing existence, at least for some period of time, it's almost universal. And I mean, you could find this in Japan. You could find this right. in Siberia and Africa right. among the Native Native Americans, North and South America. In fact, Tyler, E.B. Tyler, uh, you know, a 19th century anthropologist thought that this was actually the origin of religion, the fear huh. of the human dead, the fear that they will come back if their souls are not at rest to wreak harm on human beings. It's this old evolutionary model that's largely been rejected Mm -hmm. of religion that starts with the human dead, and then the spirits of nature, animism, and then polytheism, and then evolving toward monotheism. The evidence doesn't really indicate an evolutionary pattern, but we find these very archaic notions of the human dead continuing. Now, sometimes they're seen as almost kind of disappearing over time, and there are certain cultures where you honor the first and second, and then you get to the third generation, and they've seen it's kind of passed on to some other undefined realm. But you only have to worry about appeasing the ancestor veneration, for instance, in the in China and in Africa, it's usually the first couple of generations. This idea of he who believes in me has eternal life, Jesus' promise of eternity, that's really a distinctively, you know, New Testament right. um, idea that, you know, it's not not that it didn't exist. I think there's some hints of that among the ancient Egyptians, the pharaohs with their you know their pyramid tombs and so on. But but that becomes a general promise for those who believe in Jesus in in, a, in the New Testament. But the key idea, though, when
0: you look at texts like Luke twenty four, I mean, whether you take the word there as spirit or ghost, Jesus doesn't end up defining what that is. I mean, there are lots of places in the New Testament where Jesus will cast out evil spirits. And here we are not told what the spirit is or what the belief about spirits were. So I right. think we should leave that mysterious. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's, if, we, if we want to confine ourselves to what's directly taught in scripture, that is not clearly defined. Yeah. You know, I also recorded some street interviews
0: asking people what they believe in terms of the afterlife in general. And it appears that traditional beliefs about heaven and hell are on the decline, but what was most surprising to me is the degree to which a person's beliefs were rooted in individual preference. What's your view of life after death? What happens when we die, in your view? Um, I think it depends on what you believe, really. Right, so what do you believe? Uh, I think if you really are surrounded by people you love, like I think you'll probably see them in the afterlife, if you believe in that. Is it just about your personal preference, what you want to be true, or is there a real thing that will happen to us all? I think at this point it's more like your preference because
1: really you can't prove anything right or wrong.
0: I've always thought that people who distinctly try to do good, even if it's not rewarded in their life, then they will be rewarded in whatever they believe in, whether it's spirituality, whether it's karma, um, whether it's you know God.
1: I believe we're measured by the way we affect other people. And at the end of your life, if the good you've done outweighs the bad, then I believe you'll go to heaven or wherever it is that you believe in mostly just comes down to the intentions in your heart.
2: I lean toward reincarnation.
0: I don't think that there's like a heaven or a hell.
2: Boy, you know, sir, I, I ponder that all the time. I have no idea. I used to think for religious purposes, yep. but I tend to lean toward that when you're dead, you're dead. That's just my opinion. That's just one man's opinion. Life after death? I'm not sure. Could we, we could transform into anything
1: tree, a a flower, grass, a spirit,
0: Um,
2: I'm just not, I don't think that's something that we can know.
0: I don't think the soul ever dies. You know, our body, yeah, whether the soul goes up into a heaven or you get reincarnated into somebody else, you know, you're reborn. Um, It's really
1: the last ultimate adventure that everybody waits to find out I'm not saying like oh when we die we just die or I'm not saying if we die we go to hell or not I don't really know I don't really think about it too much I believe in karma
0: whatever you you know if you do right you're gonna get right if you do wrong you get wrong and I believe in in reincarnation because I think that if we let's say we
2: die and we did a lot of bad things now hopefully when we become another person or another being we can be a better person
0: What's your view of death? What happens when we die? What do you think? Um, Traditional heaven and hell guy, or is it more like we just stop existing, or it's reincarnation? Yeah, you just stop existing, then you just go to the ground, that's it. So why do you have that view? There are lots of different views. So what's your reason for having that view? Because we don't really know what happens after. No one really knows. So. Yeah, we don't know, so why would it be that view instead of any other option? It's just what I think it is. I'm not really sure, though. You know, You never know. I'm sort of reminded by de Tocqueville's line that in America,
2: truth becomes what is meaningful personally. Well, I think we've come a long way from de Tocqueville because when de Tocqueville famously coined that term individualism, mm. which was used in the English translation of of democracy in America, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, that's the very first instance of the word individualism. But that represented for Tocqueville at that time a kind of individual agency initiative People not waiting for the government to decide for them. But this idea that reality itself is defined by the individual. I mean, there are very few people in the 19th century who are thinking along those lines. Maybe the transcendentalists up in New England. Yeah, uh, Thoreau says that, used a famous line about the man who, you know, who marches to the beat of his own drummer, you know. Let him march to that beat, however measured or far away. I think the expression is that that would have been an outlying belief. You know, there's a guy named um, Lee Schmidt, who is, teaches at Washington University in St. Louis, and did a book on traveling souls. And uh, that it's it's basically starts with transcendentalists, and he takes it all the way to Oprah. But what his argument is is that these views of radical religious individualism, individual both pursuing reality for themselves and even defining it for themselves, that that goes from a a marginal to a mainstream view. And, you know, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga calls it, he has a term for it, he called it creative anti-realism, which is this idea that my choices, my preferences, create the reality that I prefer. Yeah. And that pulls apart from the notion that we live in a, we come into this world with many things that are fixed around Mm -hmm. us and that our task in life is to conform ourselves to uh, the world around us of course I mean philosophically the shift started with the with the philosopher Immanuel Kant who said no the mind doesn't conform to the objects around us but these objects conform to our own mind and I discovered in my research that again this is getting into deep into philosophy but but Immanuel Kant was troubled by this doctrine of, of God's creation from nothing, because he thought that it gave ultimate power to God, and it marginalized us. And so, in effect, he's trying to, arguably, was trying to show that we create the world around us Interesting. through the operation of our own our own mind. Carl Truman does some of this in his book, uh,
0: The Triumph of the Modern Self. One of the things he talks about there is dancing, how like in the Jane Austen world, the important thing was to conform to the others in that dance that you had to learn. And if you're out of step with the rhythm of that communal dance, then it's embarrassing communally. But now, like you fast forward to our day, you know, you go to the local dance club and everybody's doing their own thing and you don't have to be in step with others. You know, that shift culturally is moving away from conformity and that isn't just the way it is on the dance floor either. It seems
2: like that's become the norm in our religious and worldview convictions too. It's not an accident that people wiggling, gyrating, spinning in their self-chosen way emerged in the dance culture at the same time that this that the cultural slogan was "Do your own thing." Right. So, you know, the, uh, the choreographic version of that is precisely what you begin to see in the dance floor. It's a great uh, analogy and image that Carl Truman has given us because the two things run directly in parallel.
0: Now, on another occasion, I had the opportunity to discuss the topic of near-death experiences with Dr. McClymond, and I started this conversation by playing a short clip for my good friend Justin Holcomb, who used to teach a class on this subject at the University of Virginia.
1: In 1975, Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, got this whole thing started about near-death experiences. And there's a journal, academic peer-reviewed journal called the Journal of Near-Death Studies. And what everyone's finding by actually studying this scientifically is that there's about 15 different characteristics that people who have near-death experiences all have. Common ones are reunion with dead relatives, great warmth, beings of light, and the idea of being overwhelmed with love, joy, and peace. But notice in the American ones, there's a god. There's not multiple gods, and there's also not some impersonal divine energy. So in the American near-death experience, there's this kind of vague, deistic kind of being who's kind of still on the periphery, even in these near-death experience moments, because it's all about the person's life and self-improvement and coming back and making some changes is, is basically just the, the narrative of self-discovery and self-improvement with some kind of vague spiritual language and experience wrapped around it. Very optimistic about humanity, always affirming and it, it sounds more like a projection of one's desires for what the afterlife will be. It's affirming, it's peaceful and that's one of the biggest things that stood out to the people who researched this is that there isn't a lot of terror or a lot of fear or a sense of judgment. And there were in previous eras and epochs and in different religions where that is predominant, a near-death experience takes on the language and imagery of the culture in which that person resided.
2: Well, it's a very interesting statement from Justin and I can mention him as someone I was acquainted with some years ago. Justin is essentially, as I take it, arguing that the near-death experience has an aspect of cultural construction to it, constructed around certain basic assumptions, like the assumption that there is one God, monotheism. I think that seems plausible to me. It would be very interesting to see if near-death experiences took on a different shape, for example, in the polytheistic culture. I think that there are things that are easier and harder to explain about the near-death experience accounts. I, as a Christian believer, I'm ultimately committed to Christ, to Scripture as my test of truth, and I frankly don't know how to answer all the questions. Um, right. There are particular cases that seem to be well-documented when someone in the hospital room has been declared physically dead, then revived some minutes later, and are able to recount— Conversations that took place between maybe family members or doctors, mm-hmm. uh, maybe fifty yards away in a different room within the hospital, and they they themselves will say that they left their body, they experienced seeing them, their own body from outside, went to that other room, mm-hmm. heard that conversation, and accurately reported it. Now that's the kind of thing where it's a challenge through a naturalistic frame of reference because there doesn't seem to be any explanation other than the one that they've given of leaving their own body. To, yeah, and I think uh, some of those
0: kinds of reports, and there have been many of them that have been documented, where the person actually gave information that they couldn't have gathered otherwise. They were there in that that's right. state when this particular item was put in the drawer, and then they revealed that they knew where the item was. So I guess for me, I would say those kinds of experiences prove the existence of the soul. The challenge ends up becoming what kind of theology
2: comes out of the experience. The message that everyone is okay, there's nothing to fear, everyone is headed to a place of light, is not in accord with the overall message of Scripture. It's one thing for someone to receive that as a personal assurance. I mean, someone could certainly have an experience in which they felt assured of their own relationship Mm -hmm. with God. But what's interesting is that the near-death experience, people are not saying that. They're saying, no, no, my experience has to be canonical for everyone. Right. And that's a step beyond the experience of, I was embraced by the light, therefore everyone is embraced by the light. How would we know that? Is Hitler embraced by the light as well? Everyone without exception? Yeah, That's really the question. It moves from an
0: experience to dogma. For example, in his number one best-selling book, Proof of Heaven, neurosurgeon Eben Alexander tells the story of his own near-death experience, in which he was simply told, quote, "'You are loved and cherished dearly forever. You have nothing to fear.'" There is nothing you can do wrong. Each and every one of us is deeply known and cared for by a creator who cherishes us beyond any ability we have to comprehend. That knowledge must no longer remain secret. This love, he concludes, offers us the power to heal ourselves, our species, our planet, and our entire existence. What do you think about near-death experiences of this kind?
2: Something is happening culturally to assign This tremendous revelatory significance to these kinds of experiences. And I think, you know, Christopher Lash wrote back in the 1980s this famous book on the culture of narcissism. Mm -hmm. And so really where religion on the popular level in many contexts, for those particularly who are not part of a traditional religious community, religion is really centered on the self. I mean, turn on Hope for Winfrey, you know, and see her programs. They're all about a kind of self-oriented religion. So there's a question of the self, the continuance of the self, how the projects that we take on during the present life continue into the life beyond. You know, there is a self-focus to begin with. Um, Robert Bella also comes to mind. You mentioned
0: Christopher Lash. Robert Bella's book, Habits of the Heart. Yes. In fact, he coined the term Sheilaism right. to describe the religion of each one of us, because right. every single person has their own kind of eclectic view.
2: Exactly. Sheila was the young nurse who, when asked, what is your religion, she said, it's my own little voice. I guess I would call it Sheilaism. Yeah. So everyone becomes their own religious founder mm-hmm. in this view. I mean, there are people who have little shrines in their home, and they'll have a yin-yang and a crucifix and a Buddha, and basically saying, I'm going to construct my own religion. It's like pouring cocktails, you know, you have the bloody Mary or a screwdriver you know putting in alcohol and as christians we need to test everything that is presented as spiritual truth according to scripture it's interesting to me that in scripture we read in second corinthians 11:14 that satan disguises himself as what an angel of, angel of, light. of light and what do people say in their near death experiences they see angels of light yeah That doesn't mean that there couldn't be an encounter with a good angel, but it would mean, it definitely means that one would have to test. Just because it appears to one as an angel of light, scripturally speaking, does not mean that it should be accepted as such. Appearances can be deceiving. Alexander's statement, You have nothing to fear. Jesus said to fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew 10. Or even in the Old Testament, the
0: fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, right, that's true. I'm fascinated by Ibn Alexander's comment that, quote, this knowledge that we can do no wrong and that we are cherished must no longer remain a secret. That idea of secret knowledge is one of the chief characteristics
2: of Gnosticism, isn't it? That's, That's right. something although, you have written extensively about. <laughs> right, although in this case he wants the secret that was revealed to him to be shouted from the housetop, so to Right, speak. but he
0: is the one to release this secret knowledge, right. and, and he's the source there of that secret information,
2: which makes him sort of the mediator of that esoteric idea. But there's an awful lot in the quote that runs counter to Scripture. The idea that there's nothing you can do wrong, well, what if the commandments of god in scripture yeah I mean, what, what is sin <laughs> well and right and and i wonder if even alexander really believes that that there is no difference of right and wrong well how would he feel if we showed up and robbed his house i mean right. honestly it's like there's a story about jt uh, moreland the christian apologist who was speaking at a university campus and one of the students kept saying right and wrong or merely subjective ideas and that there's no difference between them. Well, he, did, he made no progress in front of the audience with this particular student, but he found out which dorm he lived in. He showed up at the dorm, went up and this dorm room, door was open, and so he walked into his room, started unplugging his stereo set. The student came back to the room. He says, what are you doing? He says, I'm taking your stereo." He says, you can't do that. He said, why not? He says, because it's wrong. So he showed very plainly, <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure I recommend the method, but right. but there is a tendency in the sort of self-oriented religion to make right and wrong subjective, and that's one of the disturbing elements here. Yeah. In my book, The Devil's Redemption, I have a, quite a bit of documentation in a section there on the paranormal about the connection between near-death experiences and teaching of universal salvation. And Hmm. see, this isn't new. This actually, although the history is not that well-known, I think most people are familiar with Raymond Moody's work. and Life After Life. Yeah, Life After Life and Betty Eady, and the sort of Embraced by the Light, the whole series of books. But what most people don't know is that the leading evangelist in the eastern U.S. for universal salvation, a man named George de Beneville, not well-known, uh, had a very interesting history back in Europe, but when he came to the New World, he had an experience where he was declared dead, and he was actually put in a coffin. It was like three days he was thought to be dead, and he came out of the state that he was in, said that he had been taken to the spirit world, and he had been given a revelation that all are saved, mm-hmm. a revelation of universal salvation. And he dedicated the rest of his life to being an, He was an intrepid evangelist, went all through the eastern U.S. One of his disciples was Elhanan Winchester, who had a a pulpit of the Universalist Church in Philadelphia, who was one of the leading American Universalists. I read other Universalist literature, uh, including one person who, Universalist who went into the spirit world and claimed that they met Adam there. And Adam said, all my descendants are saved. Hmm. And then there was another one who heard these spirit beings crying out in hallelujah that everyone is saved. So there's actually a direct link here between the origins of universalist teaching in the U.S. and the near-death experience. So it's this is not something new, but it's a repetition of a pattern. And it
0: does seem to be what Ibn Alexander is teaching here, you know, this idea that there is nothing to fear. You are loved and cherished just as you are. There is nothing you can do wrong. There's no sin. There's no need for redemption. There's just... Universalism right. That is
2: essentially tied in with this notion of that we carry salvation within ourselves. Yeah. That there's just a small step for many between affirming this idea of embraced by the light and the idea that I am the light myself. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm embraced by the light is that I have that spark of God within me. Right. And this is, in many ways, it's the original heresy. When Eve is tempted by the serpent, he said, you shall be as God, you know, knowing good and evil. And so, if we have salvation contained within ourself. Shirley MacLaine in the 1980s, when people were talking then using the language of the New Age movement, in her book, I think it's called Out on a Limb, she says, basically, uh, I'm paraphrasing, she says, each one of us have all the righteousness, all the wisdom, all the truth, all the holiness we will ever need. Hmm. So the task is to tap into what lies within myself. Yeah. It's not to be dependent upon a Savior who is external to ourselves. Exactly. So there's something fundamentally contradictory between this idea of turning and finding your salvation inside of yourself within your own nature and being called upon to put your faith in the christ who has died for our sins i wonder if you get the same response again when shirley
0: mclean says you know, I have all the righteousness right now that I need. I wonder if her hairdresser would agree with that, you know,
2: <laughs> her Pilates instructor, you know, or do they just see a narcissist? <laughs> well, it reminds me of the story of C.H. Spurgeon, who had a man come into his office in London. He was a great 19th century Baptist preacher. And the man said that he had not sinned for these many, many years that he was completely without sin. And Spurgeon, that's, that's interesting. He took a glass of water and then threw it in his face. And he said, Some very unsanctified language came out of the man's mouth right away. I don't recommend the method, but you see that (laughs) he got his point across that he wasn't as sanctified. I encountered online some years ago uh, a woman originally born in Belgium who had come to the U.S., and she had a near-death experience. And one of the things that was interesting just in conversation with her is that this experience had really become so central to her life. She really had become an evangelist proclaiming this message, and it was clear that you know we could almost talk about NDE, near-death experience, ism, mm-hmm. as a religious, uh, a religious system. Eben Alexander, in his book, Proof of Heaven,
0: also writes that, quote, "...I will occasionally use om as the pronoun for God, because om was the sound I remember hearing associated with that omniscient, omnipotent, and unconditionally loving God, but any descriptive word falls short. Om told me that there is not one universe, but many." Regarding religion, he says, "...I have since visited many places of worship, both Christian and otherwise, and though the specifics of the setting differ, that core feeling of gratitude to the divine always comes through." As a result of his life-transforming experience, Alexander says, "...I have no choice but to live my life as authentically as I can. We must always be true to our
2: hearts." What do you think about those comments? Well, Om. you know, I teach a course on religions of Asia. Om is a sacred Hindu syllable. So Mm. this is not a neutral word for the divine or the sacred. This is actually a Hindu prayer. If he's chanting a Hindu prayer, I'm not surprised that he comes up with a Hindu theology. Mm. The Hindu theology has always insisted that God is manifold, that God cannot be captured in any one image or, or notion. God is both personal and impersonal. I would also point out too that the position that Alexander is presenting, in some ways, seems to contradict itself because he's saying, "Okay, words fall short; words can't describe God." But then he's describing God. Then he's yeah. So so which way is it? If right. if God is really so beyond all descriptions, then why is he writing a book to tell us who he thinks God is? I don't. I mean, the Christian answer to that is that God certainly transcends the language you use for him, but there is an analogical relationship. We say God is a heavenly father. We're saying that God is not limited to what we think of as the earthly father. God transcends that, goes beyond that, but that there are aspects of earthly fatherhood that are appropriately used to refer to God, and so on with all the language we use about God. The problem in Hinduism is that ultimately you end up with a kind of agnosticism, that yes, we use language about God, but ultimately we don't really know who or what God is, if it's a it, a he, a she, a they. He so transcends what we know that you can't really say anything positively. But this theme of agnosticism is really kind of important in our culture. We live in a culture that in many ways is happy to be agnostic, Mm -hmm. because if we don't really know and no one can know, then I'll just live my life the way that I want to live it. It's a sort of path of least resistance, morally and spiritually speaking.
0: But then you have people like Eben Alexander or others that we'll be talking about on this program who have had an experience who then, as you say, go on to describe that one that most people don't know anything about. It's the secret knowledge that then, in some ways, it works as a kind of new scripture. They are imparting this new information. This is what God is really like. But my question is, why would this be more authoritative than our text with fulfilled prophecy and with eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection?
2: Well, and we come back to the whole cultural construction idea as well, that what Alexander is teaching for largely Christian and post-Christian readership is not that, they, oh, I guess what, I went to the realm beyond, I discover there are 24 million different deities out there, and you need to pick one to work. No, no, it's a monotheistic message. But notice that he is taking the idea of the love of God, really kind of drawing that from the biblical stream of teaching, unconditional acceptance using that kind of language, And then he has the sacred syllable om, so he's praying a Hindu chant. And at the same time, there's something very conspicuously missing from the Hindu side, which is karma. Mm. If I had him with me, I would want to ask Dr. Alexander do actions really have consequences? Because the classical Hindu teaching, it's very, very strict and inexorable. There is no way to escape the consequences of one's own negative actions. And this is why not just one life or a dozen lives, but maybe hundreds or thousands or millions of different lives are necessary Mm -hmm. in order to escape from the wheel of rebirth. So it's almost like this is a a religion that's been constructed to be as most user-friendly Right. As possible. You know, Particularly for, for Westerners. For Westerners, yeah. yeah. It's just like, we don't really know that much about God. We, all we know about God really is that he's not going to judge us. I never have to give account mm-hmm. for my life morally, and I'm unconditionally accepted. And you can feel the divine in whatever religious experience you have. Right. Oh, and contrary to Hindu teaching, I don't even, in Buddhist teaching, I don't even have any real consequences for the wrong that I do. Right. So, yeah. And like Disney, we just got to you know, be true to our hearts,
0: follow our heart. Right. That's the ethic that comes out of this. Now, in her book, Life on the Other Side, Sylvia Brown describes the afterlife this way. On the other side lies the scanning machine, a huge convex dome of pale blue glass, and inside that glass dome, we watch all the events of our life play out before our eyes, almost like a movie, but in a three-dimensional hologram form. Who is it who judges the life we've just completed? Quote, it's not God, and it's not our spirit guide, it's us. We judge ourselves, our triumphs, and our failures— Our spirit guide will comfort us throughout the difficult process, but ultimately, the final verdict about our success or failure is ours. What do you think about that one?
2: Well, this is interesting to read this from a recent author, because this idea goes back to the early church writer, uh, Origen, says something similar, that the judgment is essentially a self-judgment. Hmm. I didn't know that Origen said that. That's fascinating. He did, yes. And the fire that burns is the fire of conscience that burns us and wounds us as we see the wrong things that we have done. Now, I would just say this, that could this be a partial truth? Uh, there could be some aspect in which... On the day of judgment, as we are judged by God, that we actually come—if every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, that I think there may be a kind of agreement of the one being judged that actually God is true and righteous in his judgment. But this does fit in an age of autonomy and, as you were saying
0: earlier, uh, the theology of the self. If that's the center of my existence, then that would be the center of my view of the afterlife. I get to judge myself whether I
2: lived an honoring life. Well, yeah, what's the underlying premise? The premise is I am the the captain of my soul, that each of us are accountable only to ourselves. No one's business but my own. The way I live my life, I did it my way. And this is where the culture is at. So the idea that there is one to whom I am ultimately accountable romans chapter 14 says each one of us will give account of himself to god and this is pervasive in the the teaching of jesus and the epistles all throughout the new testament it's it the idea of giving account the word in english we use is accountability to be accountable is to if you're accountable you're working at a business it means that the boss can call you in and say what's happening with you know how many items have been sold this week What's the status of the finances that you're ever responsible for? To be unaccountable means that no one has the right to ask you about those kinds of questions. And I think, frankly, this self-oriented philosophy that we have today is really a kind of culture of unaccountability.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, this idea of being accountable. I mean, the language we find from Scripture is, we are not our own, but have been bought with a price. That idea of not being our own is anathema to the dogma of secular culture where I am my own.
2: And in a, in a slightly different way, it may seem a tangent, but I think the changing attitudes about suicide— and about the right to die, mm-hmm. they reflect this notion. The classical Jewish and Christian idea is that our life is given us from the Lord, that we are accountable to God. And this is why suicide, self-murder, as some earlier English authors used to call it, that why self-murder is a form of murder. I don't have the right on this view to take my own life any more than I would have to take yeah. your life or anyone else's. Now, contemporary attitudes in the secular world are very different. Why? Because... There's this notion of the autonomous self. My exactly. life is my own in the strictest sense, so why wouldn't I have the right to die? And we see in various parts, states of the U.S. and, of course, in some Western European nations, this growing movement, to sort of the right-to-die movement.
0: In her New York Times bestseller, Embraced by the Light, Betty J. Eady writes that, quote: "...I felt a surge of energy. It was almost as if I felt a pop or a release inside me." And my spirit was suddenly drawn out through my chest and pulled upward as if by a giant magnet. And when Betty finally met Jesus, she asked him, quote, Why didn't God give us only one church, one pure religion? She was told that, quote, All the religions on the earth are necessary because there are people who need what they teach. Each church fills spiritual needs that perhaps others cannot fill. No one church can fulfill everybody's needs at every level. Having received this knowledge, she writes... I knew that we have no right to criticize any church or religion in any way. They are all precious in his sight.
2: I actually confronted this in the 1990s with my own mother, who I'm happy to say changed her view. She's now with the Lord, but she had a change of view. But she was reading the the whole Embraced by the Light series. I think she had almost a complete set, and huh. was reading this. And she asked me what I thought about it, and, and my brief response, I said, if— we all carry this light within us already. Why did we need Christ? Why did he even need to come to live, to die, to rise again for us? Notice in the quotation that you read, Shane, it says, the, the spirit was drawn out through my chest as if by a giant magnet. The idea there seems to be that there's some natural affinity between what we have within us and the this God figure who's outside, that they're yeah, the all Spirit are twins. naturally goes to spirit. Exactly. We're a spark of the divine. Right. And so the moment we die, it moves out of our chest and then it, it rises up by its own uh, natural lift. It, it goes to a higher place. Yeah, which seems to be the theology of our
0: age because people seem to have this view. I mean, we could maybe describe it as sola mortem. You know, we're justified by death alone. <laughs> all <laughs> yes. you have to do is die. And like you say, the soul
2: goes up like a helium balloon this is what souls do they go to heaven well in the 19th century the, there was a debate internal debate among universalists and those who held that death meant the end of all consequences of all the of one's actions and the people the universalists who didn't agree with that thought that was too radical a view they said well then death would be the savior because mm-hmm. as soon as you die There's no problem. It doesn't matter how you die. You could be dying and you could be the mass murderer shooting people happily and then suddenly taken down by a sniper shot. And if death is the end and it's a severing of all consequences, then you would go immediately to God's blissful presence. But again and again, we run into this same theology that
0: all the religions are fine, that you can't criticize any one denomination, that we're all good. God loves us all. That does seem to be a, a consistent
2: theology that's emerging from a lot of these near-death experiences, isn't it? Yes. This and, universalism. And if Edie were correct that no one has the right to criticize any church or religion, well, first of all, I would want to draw Edie out if, if I had the opportunity to talk with her and said, are you saying that there's no such thing as an evil religion? I mean, you know, we could argue that Nazism, yeah. was a, it had a religious element. It was a neo-pagan revival of a cruel character. And there are forms of religion. What about human sacrifice? We know this isn't an isolated case. This was a regular—what about the Aztec religion? It's a religion. What about the idea that Jesus is the only way? Would she criticize that? It sounds like she's not affirming that, right? <laughs> right. There, yeah, there's some in, inconsistency. But if this were right, then it would be the end of evangelism. It would be the end of moral and spiritual mm-hmm. striving. Why would I strive to be more faithful to Christ if— the position i'm in is already perfectly acceptable and and everyone's everybody's okay
0: what's the story you tell in the book about the bank robber who came to the idea of universalism
2: well, yeah this is actually out of a 19th century source so it had a very contemporary ring to it it was the idea of the bank robber will make a a gamble that he will be able to rob the bank he's willing to die and be killed by the policeman mm-hmm. if he fails to rob the bank but and so there are two possible outcomes this is like a pascalian wager you know on the one hand he successfully robs the bank and he's a millionaire the other second alternative is he fails to rob the bank he's killed by the policeman and then he's in god's blissful presence in heaven and so he's reasoning that those are both better Win-win. outcomes than <laughs> the life I'm living right now as a poor guy <laughs> in in the
0: USA yeah So leaving the world of near-death experience, I want you to comment on some themes in pop culture that are dealing with the idea of what happens when we die. And so I have a couple of uh, things that I'd like you to comment on here. The first is lyrics from a song that appeared in the movie, A Star is Born, the recent one with Bradley Cooper. Early in the movie, he sings this song called Maybe It's Time to Let the Old Ways Die. And here are some of the lyrics from this song that I think are fascinating. He says, nobody knows what awaits for the dead. Some folks just believe in the things they've heard and the things they've read. But then later in the song, we find this. When I was a child, they tried to fool me, said the worldly man was lost and that hell was real. Well, I've seen hell and Reno and all this world's one big old Catherine wheel spinning still. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Uh, I looked up a uh, Catherine wheel. Apparently, it's a torture wheel. You know, So it's basically what he's talking about there is hell
2: on earth, but there is no other kind of hell. What do you think about those lyrics? Well, I think we live in an age where some form of agnosticism, the idea that we don't know or maybe that we can't know, is extremely popular. Um, that, that certainly knows. comes through
0: in the beginning. Yeah, nobody knows. But what's fascinating to me is the second part. He does know that he's been fooled about the afterlife. So Mm -hmm. when he was told about hell, he doesn't seem to be an agnostic anymore. He knows for sure that that's wrong.
2: Yeah, it is interesting, as you point out, that there seems to be in the song enough knowledge to reject the Christian narrative, but not to really clearly put anything else in its place. The other
0: thing is that when you hear that refrain, maybe it's time to let the old ways die, I think we're basically being encouraged to give up our old ways of thinking about heaven and hell simply because they're old. We're tired of those old, mm-hmm. outdated ideas. We don't like them anymore. It says more about us and what we're tired of more than what's true or not about the universe. Belief,
2: right? yeah, belief is fashion. And, yeah. And, I mean, I have no trouble with the idea that... the. Paris and Milan, they are going to be new fashions every year, but remember when people were talking in the 60s and 70s about the new morality, mm-hmm. as if morality itself would change, you know, that yeah. love your neighbor as yourself would be passe or out of date and need to be replaced with something else. It's, it's just—but, you know, the appeal to that is getting out from under the constraints and the restrictions of right. morality, or in this case, a doctrinal view that would say that Christ is the Savior— And no one comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. So if you you treat it as a fashion, then it's like taking off one shirt and putting on another. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: Of course, you're familiar with John Lennon's Imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's uh, think about the lines here. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one.
2: Thoughts? If there's any one text that could be considered a secular anthem in our age, this would be it. In fact, I don't know if you know, the Freedom From Religion Foundation uses, on the sides of buses, this phrase, imagine there's no religion. Hmm. So they actually use that, which of course is clever because it builds on people's awareness of the song. But once Um, again, it's not a position that's arrived at through argumentation
0: or careful consideration of either the facts of the universe or of an authoritative text. It's just something we imagine to be true. It's an idea we construct, and
2: we believe it because we want it to be true. Imagine, yes, exactly. It's appeal to imagine. Imagine everyone living for today. You have to really think through the full consequences of this. It is, this life is all there is. Death is final. There's nothing else beyond extinction death is extinction this is the closest in terms of the history of philosophy to epicureanism Because exactly. the epicureans lucretius mm-hmm. let us eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die tomorrow we die so it is involves uh, and it means all the projects that we take on human projects endeavors they will end notice also in the lyrics too it says no hell below us above us only sky i think there's a hint of human perfectibility there, the idea the the open sky representing like the human effort to build the perfect society. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. (laughs) And look at the last uh, two and a half centuries from the French Revolution Mm -hmm. on the socialist movement, smaller groups of the 19th century, and then international communism particularly. The Black Book of Communism, edited by Stéphane Courtois, Estimates that 100 million people died directly as a result of the communist regime. They were living
0: for today, because they didn't believe in that in a hell below us or in mm-hmm. heaven above us. But
2: they didn't cause the world to be one. <laughs> <laughs> right? In Cambodia, they called it year zero, and the idea was that they were going to begin a new society. They were going to obliterate all history. And began again. And so the people from the city who knew nothing about farming were turned out of their homes and forced into the the woods and the fields to work in rice paddies. And you had mass starvation because no one—it was a world built completely on theory by a man named Pol Pot— who is the leader of Cambodia. So I think we need to be very, very careful. There's a huge difference between the way these ideal plans for the perfect society sound in theory and the way they work out in reality. And the the problem is that intellectuals are often very caught up with the idea, oh yes, everyone living in harmony, oh Mm -hmm. yes, let's do away with national boundaries, let's just be one human family. Let's have income redistribution, and we can see how that has worked out also in the last century, too. What
0: fascinates me as we conclude this program is that uh, this is not just a representation of secular culture, but there are also secular aspects to American Christian culture today as well. So, you know, what's being emphasized in this song is no heaven above us, above us only sky, no hell below us, living for today— And then when you think about those ideas and you compare them with book titles such as Having Your Best Life Now, the emphasis is not on standing before God's heavenly throne, being clothed in in the righteousness of another, but it's all about getting through life trouble-free and getting that perfect parking space. And if you read Joel Osteen's books, it's very much this worldly, and— in some ways, you could think of it as a kind of a secularized version of yes.
2: Christianity. Well, I think uh, the person that really devoted much of his life and writing to addressing specifically this problem was C.S. Lewis. He was way ahead of the curve in terms of understanding the challenge of secular thinking, secular the secular mentality, and how it had affected even professing Christians. He, Lewis said at one point, "All that is not eternal is eternally Nance. out of date." Mm. And I would make a comment on the word secular, too. Many don't know that that word comes from cyclum, which is a Latin word for age. And so a secular person, a secularist is an ageist. A secular person is focused on the present age that has fully occupied his or her mind attention. It's what's here, it's what I can see and taste and touch and feel, it's like anything else doesn't matter, or if not, is not outright. Uh, denied. And Lewis, in his m- many writings, you know, the screw Tape Letters and the Great Divorce and his other writings, was really trying to l- raise the level of awareness in the Christian world. It is the eternal that gives significance to the present life. For John Lennon, like Karl Marx, these things are in competition. Mm-hmm. If I become heavenly minded, it no means earthly I, good. I, have, I have become of, someone of no earthly good. And in fact, in Scripture, it is actually the opposite It is as we worship the god of heaven and earth that we actually become our true self so the worship itself is at the very center of what it means to be human it's not a, it doesn't detract no it's actually it it humanizes us it's as we worship god this is a christian humanist vision god is not the enemy of human well-being but we actually find our true humanness only in relation to him
0: Well, folks, thanks for joining me for this special edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. As always, be sure to head to the show notes for more on this topic, to put a few bucks in the tip jar, or to become a paid subscriber through Substack. Please remember to share episodes with friends and family to help get the word out, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.